Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. So excited to kick off uh, this new series. This is going to be really, really cool. Um, and we intentionally wanted to pick a series and talk into something that um, no, I don't think anyone's an expert on. And I want to put a disclaimer out right from the outset, asking this question or talking about what God is like. I'm actually not 100% sure. And I know that probably fills you with a whole lot of confidence. And why are you talking on this? I want to invite you over the next few weeks to wrestle with some of the ideas that we hold about what God indeed is like. And uh, so if you're just joining us for the first time at Suncoast, or maybe it's your first time ever in church or the first time for a long time, this is going to be hopefully such a helpful series for you to get your head around and for you to engage uh, in this topic. And obviously, as our uh, the, the, the video showed earlier, there's a heap of cool nights happening through this series on Mondays called our Grow Nights. We go a lot deeper into a few of the subjects and obviously in our connect groups that happen. But I'm really excited about this opportunity to share. So seeing, seeing that video just sent to the kids, it brought back a lot of these, I was about to say traumatic, but they're not so traumatic, they're just real, uh, imageries of my childhood. And because um, all of us somewhere got our initial or our first ideas of what God is like from somewhere. So my first question for you is, where did you get your idea from? And when it started for you, was it handed to you? Did you wrestle it? Did you research it yourself? Did you grow up in a, for some of you, maybe you grew up in a Christian home and so you went to like a Sunday school or, you know, kids church environment. Maybe some of you grew up in another kind of religion and so you had a a different idea to the Christian take and what God is like. Or maybe in your home, there was like no acknowledgement of God or wherever it is though, however it happened for you, somewhere along the line, we got our initial or our first idea of what God is like. And for me, I had the opportunity of being brought up in a Christian home. So I went to like a kid's church when I was younger. And I know we got a whole bunch of the kids out right now and their program right now. So it was similar for me. And so growing up, I had, if I could in a picture sum up what God was like to me, this picture here is probably the perfect idea of what God, God is like. He is like that. Okay, the classic oil painting Look, he's even got the red satchel thing on. I just noticed that then. That wasn't even planned. It's amazing. But this idea of like, he's meek, he's mild. Uh, I find it odd that he's like white there when Jesus was like Middle Eastern. So that's anyway, that's an interesting take. Got long flowing hair. So I find funny because there's a lot of Bible colleges in the world where men aren't allowed to have long hair, but it's like Jesus had one. There you go. So this idea of looking after sheep and he's protective and he's got the cane there to fight away wolves and keep away sheep robbers. And so this was kind of my idea growing up of a God who was like a shepherd and was nurturing and kind, which, you know, growing up, it's actually a brilliant foundation. It's better than the alternative, like that God is angry and God's mad with you and God's out to get you. And so, you know, I grew up with this idea of uh, like, I always grew up singing the song, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. And now I do that to my daughter. So every night I go, what song do you want daddy to sing to you? And she's like, no singing daddy, horrible. No, she doesn't really. She goes, she goes, I want you to sing Jesus loves me with the pfft. And I was like, okay. And I'll leave it to your imagination what she means by the pfft. Because anyway, it's our own rendition. So, so that was kind of my idea growing up. So where did you get your first idea from? Out of childhood, then I entered the infamous teenage years. Where are all the teenagers at? Exactly. This room's full of them. None of them will ever apply to something kooky like that. So, so I went into my teenage history. I had no response at all from that. So don't invite me on a Friday night to talk. It's just going to bomb. So there you go. 
so in my teenage years, then my idea of what God was like changed from that kind of shepherding, you know, that idea of the painting there. Because what happened was I did a little bit of research on what a shepherd actually was like. And the picture of Jesus holding this, you know, you little lamb in his arms, you know, kind of nursing and cuddling it. I realized that what shepherds do to sheep that run away is they catch them and they smack them over the back of the leg with their rod and break their legs to teach them not to run away again. So that little sheep that Jesus was holding, he wasn't nursing it because he was caring for it. He was nursing for it because it was crippled. That was me in my teenage years, right? Because I quickly learned that the alleged Jesus way of the God way wasn't exactly fit with my way. That I, and I couldn't understand why the whole world didn't agree with my worldview about the world. And I didn't understand why everyone was so selfish and never thinking about me first. And it really, it really confused me in my teenage years. So my idea of what God was like transitioned from this shepherd kind of holding sheep idea to this idea. And this, this picture kind of, I remember seeing this next one in my... My arm's still up there. In my, uh, in my teenage years, this picture here. And if you can notice, it's a teenage guy holding a hammer in one hand, a nail in the other, being held by Jesus with holes in his hands. And to me, this summed up my teenage years. As I began to grapple with the idea that there's this God who loves me and forgives me, but yet I keep doing things and making mistakes that makes me, in my opinion, so unworthy of his acceptance and his love and his forgiveness and grace. But yet here was this message over and over again, that God loves you regardless and God is there for you still. And so that picture really summed up for me, my idea of God. Here's me making mistake after mistake after mistake, but yet he refused to let me go. And then as I grew beyond my adolescent years, my teenage years kind of into young adulthood, my idea then matured and changed again into this picture right here. (laughs) That. All of a sudden, I wasn't quite sure. Maybe that's where you are too right now. And you've lived a little bit of life and events have happened that maybe haven't gone always according to your plans. And so maybe the neat kind of fixed ideas that someone else told you God was like, don't just stack up for you anymore. And maybe life has shown that the early ideas or the original ideas of what God is like to you just don't seem to square anymore with what you've experienced. And so we all now sit in this tension of figuring out then what What is God like? And the difficulty of trying to figure out what anyone is like or what anything is like is that you and I will always need a point of reference. And to help define and to help identify what anyone or anything or any place is like, we need a point of reference, right? That's why a lot of people, before you travel anywhere or even go to a restaurant these days, you will jump on TripAdvisor to get someone's idea, to someone reference their experience and what it was like. And people will say, well, if you go to that restaurant, it's kind of like this restaurant. And like, if you're trying to explain what someone's like, maybe you're trying to tell someone, you know, what your, your dad's like or your brother's like, and you try to find a point of reference. And so you go, well, my dad's kind of like Russell Coit or something like that, right? So you're anyone's dad like Russell Coit? Anyone wishes their dad? So, so we're always looking for some point of reference. The difficulty when it comes to finding a point of reference with God is what's like God? Because God ultimately is the point of reference and to which we try and compare and find meaning of the rest of life. And so, so this is one of the great tensions that we're going to jump you know, straight into with this series. Because even the disciples of Jesus, those who were his first followers there, his, his closest but intimate friends, 
they would always wrestle with this conversation with Jesus and look through his teachings and what he showed and what he taught about what was God would like. And so we'd often read through the accounts of Jesus' life, his disciples kind of pressing on Jesus and then other people of his day finding out, you know, what's your take? What is God like? Who is he like? Can you just give us kind of an explanation of this? And and one profound conversation that happened towards the end of Jesus' life was with one of his disciples named Philip. And John, who's another disciple, recorded this conversation. And here's Philip's question to Jesus. This is about a week out from Jesus' death. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Show, just, can you just give us a picture? Paint it. Tell us what he looks like. Does he have a beard? Does he have long flowing hair? Show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. Then we'll be convinced. Just no more kind of philosophy. No more word pictures. Just give it to us plainly. What is God like? And the reason this is such a big question for us all to wrestle with is our understanding of what God is like ultimately makes all the difference in how you and I will live out our lives. Let me put it to you this way. Some people's idea of what God is like will lead them to the lifestyle whereby they will place God. Many of you might be like this, where you place God right in the center of your world and your whole world revolves around God. You recognize He's interested not just in the major areas, but also the minor areas of your life. Your relationships revolve around what you think God is like. Your finances, um, how you conduct yourself morally, how you conduct yourself in private, your thought life. Your idea of what God is like, you are convinced that He cares, that He's concerned, that He wants to be involved with all your life. And so you place Him in the center and your world revolves around Him. Still others of us, your idea of, of God might have led you to placing God simply in the situation where He is relegated to emergencies. He's your triple O number, right? You turn to God when the sickness, you turn to God when you need a job, you turn to God when she dumps you, uh, you turn to God when there's just no parking place at the plaza, right? So, so, so God's just, He's relegated to emergency and that's kind of where your idea of God leads you. And then you flip it around on its head. Some people their idea of God, and this is amazing, their idea of God causes them to have such compassion for the world and their hearts break for what they see. And their idea of what God would like leads them to do an incredible acts of justice and to giving all their money away to the poor and doing kind of reckless, amazing, generous acts of mercy to, the, to mankind. But still other people's idea of what God is like leads them to being vindictive towards mankind and hateful and angry and kind of spiteful at how the world is wired. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the funny thing is some people's idea of God and arguably obviously your idea of God in one way or another leads you to want to gather in community like this where you could easily be doing anything else, but you find yourself celebrating in community, growing and learning about faith. So others of you, your idea of God causes you to give a percentage of your income away willingly to volunteer, to help create a ministry environment for other people to be helped and encouraged. Like this is amazing stuff. And then you flip that over to the other side where some people's idea of God causes them to willingly blow themselves up and to kill for it. But to which the other side, there are some whose idea of God causes them to willingly lay down their life and to be killed for their faith in God. So make no mistake about it. Your idea of what God is like will make ultimately a huge difference in your life. So my question to you tonight as we kick this series off is where are you getting your ideas of what God is like from? And this is such a, a healthy and important question to wrestle with. One of my favorite authors, and many of you have probably read his stuff or at least seen some of the movies based off his works. His name is C.S. Lewis, amazing philosopher and author and theologian from the 20th century, a British guy. And at the height of his career, his wife tragically died from sickness. And this just, he went through huge, huge amounts of grief. 
And like any person who would go through, and some, many of you have walked through grief in your own life, cause you to ask some honest questions. And sometimes going through tragedy in life will rattle the previous held conceptions or idea that you have of God. And so in the classic way that C.S. Lewis would, he outworked his grief and he outworked his thoughts through writing. And he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And he wrote it under a, uh, an alias name because he didn't want people to know it was his journey. And, and after his own death, it was re-released under his name. So it was a great mystery. Didn't use his wife's name in it. But he was really, really transparent about his grief, about his despair, about the struggle he had with faith in God because he went through a new life experience that he hadn't been through before. But as he journeyed through, and, he, he write, and it's an amazing book to read. And I encourage you, if you're interested in walking through something like this in your own life, it's a great book to read through. Because he walks through a Eventually, how he comes from the grief and despair and hopelessness to finding hope again and finding meaning again and finding joy again and finding God again in a brand new re-envisioned way. And his ideas of God were not only renewed, they were stronger, brighter, and more hopeful than ever before. But right at the heart of his book, he made an, an amazing quote, and it's really helped to shape my idea around this, but I wanted to share it tonight. I think it's pertinent with our series. And in his book, A Grief Observed, he says, my idea, this is so important, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. God shatters it himself. The incarnation, the incarnation is the whole idea of God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus, being incarnate. So you've heard the word carnality. It's the same kind of Latin base as incarnate. The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And so he understood this notion that even though in all the ideas he'd previously held about God and all the ideas that you and I, and that you might be here tonight, the ideas that you've held about God, or maybe someone has taught you or someone has shown you, he, he tapped into something here that's such an important principle for us to understand. It's that our idea of God, our idea of God is not God. And we've all come here with ideas of God. Now, some of them might be right on the money and some of them might have some kind of rough edges that need to be smoothed out. And some of your ideas might be really smooth that actually need a bit of jaggedness in there. I just made up a word, go figure. Okay, but needless to say, here's the tension and I wanna invite you into this for the possibility that the idea that you and I hold of God is actually not God. And a tragedy would be if you go and live your life holding on to an idea of what God is like. And that idea shapes how you live your life and how you interact with God and ultimately how you interact with yourself and with the world. But yet that idea of God never came from the idea that God gave us of Himself. Because we all get it from somewhere. And my challenge and your challenge is to go, well, what is the idea of God that He gave us of Himself? And as Philip was asking this and his disciples were asking this, you know, show us the Father, show us what God is like. And then the conversation will be over. We'll get it. There'll be no more question asking. The, com- the, the passage goes on here in Philip's conversation with Jesus. It says this, it says, show us the Father, it'll be enough for us. But Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time. Here's the clincher. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. God's idea of what God is like is Jesus. And as Jesus was teaching and ministering and explaining and kind of working out in analogies and stories and parables for years and years and years and and proving his take on God by, by showing incredible miracles and causing lives to be changed, the idea he ultimately, and this is like the last few days when he finally said this, it's the last few days of his life before he was crucified. He said, ultimately, the best way that I can explain to you what God is like is to simply say, look at me. 
I am what God is like. If you want to know what God's personality is like, look at me. If you want to know what God's heart is like to people, look at me. If you want to know what God's sense of humor is like, look at me. Ultimately this, Jesus was God's way of showing the world what He is like. And so now we have this great challenge living in the year 2019, all these years after the fact of Jesus' life is us still wrapping our head around this idea of looking at the life of Jesus and yes, what He taught, but also who He was and what He did and recognizing that this Jesus was God's idea of what He is like. Then it begs a question, and maybe you're sitting there asking this question right now in your own head. Why are there such different outworkings of the Christian faith then? If Jesus is the idea of what God is like, why do you meet one Christian who seems to outwork this in such a radically different way than what Jesus or what another Christian might be like? And so maybe the reason you're here tonight, maybe you're, not, you're someone who doesn't usually come to church, you've never even been here to a church before. Maybe the reason you came here is because you met a Christian, you met a Jesus follower. And there was something about their life, something about their worldview, something about the way they dealt with tragedy or difficulty or offense that was just so different and so unique to what you're used to. And it kind of pricked your interest and it got you curious. And so here you are. So what is it that's about your way of viewing the world? Or maybe the reason you haven't been here before, ever been to a church before, at least in a long time, is you met a Christian and the Christian turns you right off anything to do with God. And you're like, well, if they're like what God is like, then I don't want in. And the reason this plays such a big part in this conversation is because if you're a follower of Jesus here, obviously you get so much of your idea of what Jesus is like through those who were with him. You had a, you've got a Bible, you've read, the, this, this is incredible. I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. The gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, they are these ancient documents. They're over 2,000 years old. And if you read your Bible regularly, you are reading regularly ancient manuscripts. Think about that for a moment. How often do you just casually read every day these documents that were written? So the Old Testament's written over 3,000 years ago. Sorry? Oh, you're agreeing. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's like a bizarre thought, right? How often do you just read through antiquity? Oh, I'm just I'm having my cup of tea, Instagram photo. I'm reading an old parchment, right? So this is amazing. But this is what's so incredible about the gospel. There's the men who were there, those who saw it, those who walked with him, they penned down what they saw. And this is amazing. Historians will say the unique things about the gospel are they've got all these blemishes. They've got all these parts to it that if you were trying to make up a myth or you're trying to make up a story to get a religion off the ground, there's a whole lot of things in the gospels that should have never been included. Like we sang a song before about the virgin birth. If they were trying to convince people of the best religion to follow, they certainly picked a weird way for it to begin, Right. But they, what if they just were writing down how it happened? Can you imagine Luke there writing down and the guy's going, really, Luke? And he goes, trust me, guys, I'm a doctor. This is weird for me too, but that's how it happened. And so we have these incredible records of Jesus' life, how he was born, how he lived, how he died, how he was resurrected and how he ascended to heaven. And so we get that. And so we get the interaction of reading the scripture. But for many people, their first idea of God or their idea of what Jesus is like, they've never had the chance of reading the gospels. The first Bible most people will ever read is a Christian. The first gospel account someone will wrestle with is your life if you're a follower of Jesus. And so this has created potentially one of the biggest obstacles to people worldwide over all the course of humanity of getting a true picture of what God is like because of the way in which the followers of Jesus outwork their faith. And I want to give two examples from history which compare and contrast the two, and they're extremes, okay? And we all kind of sit somewhere in the middle, but they paint a picture about how we outwork the life of Jesus as followers 
of what he taught and how he lived. The first is a story, and there's a slide, I'm gonna show you a picture of here, what's called the Magdalene Laundries. And this came to light in about the early 1990s that for almost 200 years in the nation of Ireland, there was these, uh, these kind of hidden secret uh, convents where essentially the story goes that young women in, in Ireland, particularly back in the 18th and 19th, 20th, 19th and 20th century, very religiously conservative. And so um, if women got caught in, uh, they were pregnant outside of wedlock, that was like, you could, like, whether you're a believer of God or not, did not matter. Like, that was like the most horrible crime you can commit. And so these young women would be committed to these laundries, whereby for the rest of their life, they would work unpaid in these laundries, cleaning clothes, and they'd live out the rest of their lives there. And, uh, you know, their babies would be taken from them. They'd never see their children grow up. And the idea of this, this was run by the church. This was run by a certain denomination and, um, certain religious orders that would think. And their idea, the reason they call them the Magdalene Laundries is the story of Mary Magdalene, who was a prostitute in the Bible, who funnily enough, when Jesus met her and Jesus related to her, people were ready to stone her for her sins, but Jesus offered grace and Jesus showed her kindness. But here we were, somewhat 1900 years later, these laundries started as a way of making these young mums, these young unwedded girls, pay for their sins as it were. And that you've committed the most horrible sin, the most horrible crime, and now you need to spend the rest of your life making up for it and you need to make up for your sins and to work out God's judgment against you, you need to give the rest of your life to slavery. And ultimately, there was thousands and thousands of women who were subjected to this kind of outworking, what people were convinced God was like. Now, contrast this with something probably most of you know more about, and it only happened in the 90s uh, when Nelson Mandela he was released from prison in South Africa. About three years later, he became the president of South Africa. And there's a picture of him here with Archbishop Bishop Desmond Tutu. And when um, he was released from prison and he became president of South Africa, he invited his prison guards, those who stood over him as he was in prison, to stand on the stage with him at his inauguration, which as you can imagine, caused great stir. So what he did was he recognized with the story of South Africa, his words were this, that South Africa needs something more than justice. It needs reconciliation. It needs healing. And so he asked Desmond Tutu here, the bishop there, he asked, can you oversee a panel or a commission in order to help see this reconciliation happen between people who had perpetrated the most horrible crimes throughout South Africa and those in whom the crimes were committed against? And as you can imagine, there was a whole lot of people who were family members or, or people themselves who had horrible crimes committed against them. They were like, we need justice. You know, we don't want reconciliation. We want people to have to pay for the crimes they're committed. These are horrible things. But Nelson Mandela looked at the life of Jesus, what Jesus taught and said, I think reconciliation is even greater than justice. And I think that the way in the teaching of Jesus, whereby forgiveness is greater than judgment, mercy triumphs over judgment. And if it worked for the individual life, maybe it can work for the national life. And so he set up this commission whereby people who had, under the previous government, committed horrible atrocities, they could avoid persecution if they confessed their sins, presented themselves in front of this commission of that Desmond Tutu sat over, confessed their sins, asked for forgiveness, and looked at any way they were doing recompense. And they could avoid jail time or anything like that. So as you can imagine, the nation was enthralled by this moment. And one of the amazing stories that took place here was there was a woman who was in the court case. She was elderly by the time this situation happened. And uh, uh, I think as a police officer of the time, he had burned her husband alive and then subsequently burned her son alive, both in front of her. And he came and confessed these sins in front of the court and she was sitting there. And the judge asked the woman, how would you, how, what would you like to do here to see reconciliation happen? And she asked for two things. She said, number one, I'd like him to go back to the place 
where we burn my husband and my son. I would like him to collect the dirt and the dust there, put it in a box so we can have a proper burial for my son and my husband. And secondly, my request is that because this man obviously has never known real love in his life, and because this man obviously needs to know the power of forgiveness, I would ask that he is commissioned to come and visit me once every fortnight because I have a lot more love to give. And he took my outlet for my love from me. I no longer have a husband or a son. So I want to pour out this love on him because God has forgiven him and therefore I must forgive him as well. As you can imagine, the place was stunned. The nation is stunned. I'm stunned. You're stunned. The only person that we actually don't know what he truly felt was the guard himself who was on trial because he'd passed out from shock and he'd hit the deck because he could not understand this incredible notion of grace and mercy. And I highlight these two stories and the radical difference of them because, because both stem from people's idea of what God was like. The Magdalene laundries and Ireland, this was this idea of showing judgment that people had to be judged and pay for the consequences of their sins. And in many cases, we understand the notion of judgment because we're people. Showing judgment, that's very human. But the other story that happened where grace was shown, where mercy was shown, the reason that captured their hearts so much is because it's not human, it's something more. Showing grace, that's holy. And these are the two ways in which we identify the difference in what God is like and how to outwork how Jesus makes sense is when we see something that's human, like showing judgment, like people having to pay for their crimes or pay for their sins. We relate to that because we're people and that's how humans operate. But showing grace when it's not deserved, showing mercy when it's definitely not deserved, that's something higher. That is something holy. And that word holy there, you'll see it all through the New and the Old Testament. It's obviously got a lot of religious connotation around it, but its best translation is set apart as radically different, as superior, as higher. And here's one of the most radical ways that you can understand what God is like. Whenever you sense something, or whenever you see something, or whenever you have a hunch that there's a way that isn't the human way, it's usually a, a, a clue that that's God's way and how God operates. And when you engage with relationships and with life and with tension, there's usually the natural proclivity or your natural tendency to responding to certain things. That's the human way. God introduced another way, a holy way, a radical way that's completely different. God's way is not the human way. His way is the holy way. And then it begs the question for you and I, okay, if that's the case, if God's way is holy and it's not human, how then am I to outwork and recognize God's way in my everyday life. And so as Philip was having this conversation with Jesus, saying, you know, would you just show us what God is like? And that'll be enough for us, right? No more like stories, no more teaching, just give it to us plainly. And Jesus was like, you know, if you've seen me, it doesn't get any plainer than that. The conversation goes on and Jesus and Philip interact and go back and forth. And Jesus concludes his conversation with Philip and the other disciples with these remarks. And it's remarkable. The remarks are remarkable. Let's write a poem. He said, all this, in talking to Philip, all this I've spoken while still with you. Keep in mind, it was only a few days out from his death. He said, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. This is the promise that as Jesus left, God will give his spirit. He said, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he'll remind you of everything I have said to you that this is so important and setting up this whole series, you, you've got to wrestle with this. And I, again, if you are new to church and new to faith, the idea of teaching on the Holy Spirit is one of my biggest struggles in how to explain this in ways that kind of we can get our head around. But the honest truth is that sometimes it's just a difficult notion to get our head around. But Jesus put it this way. 
that he, he was God in human form. He can be at one place at one time. But there's another way that God interrelates with humanity. And that was promised once Jesus departed from the planet. And that was his spirit, his Holy Spirit. And while Jesus could be at one place at one time, the Holy Spirit can be everywhere in every one at all times. And so while Jesus was in one place, the Holy Spirit is in all of us. And Jesus said there's two things he does. The Holy Spirit teaches and he reminds us of what God is like. And so right now in your life, He's working. He's teaching. He's reminding. He's reminding you of what Jesus taught. He's teaching you about what Jesus is like. So if you're someone that's been following Jesus, you know, we do a great job of knowing how we should interact with the world. But every now and again, the Holy Spirit will go, hey, hey, there's another way that's not human. It's holy. Hey, there's another way you can, interrel- you can relate to that person. It's not a human way. It's holy. Maybe you're someone, you're wondering, I don't even know how I found myself in church tonight. I don't feel like I'm a religious person. I'm not sure if I even understand all this. It's likely because the Holy Spirit's been nudging you and going, hey, 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 there's more for your life. Hey, hey, there's a greater purpose for your life. God loves you. God's real. Lean into this. So the Holy Spirit is always working. He's always teaching. He's always reminding. This is how it kind of works in my life. Uh, A number of years ago, I won't forget this moment, I was was going for a run and I had to... I recently heard that I had to do a project and in a particular job, I had to do a project with someone who was the opposite of a friend, right? Someone I did not like, someone who had uh, been uh, essentially cruel and mean to me and my family. And so I just had no interest in relating with them and getting along with them. I was happily getting on life without them. And then I found out I had to work with them. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so I was running this out, just going through all my thoughts. Like, I don't even like this person. I want to ignore this person. This is going to be the worst time working with them. I don't want anything to do with them. Just going through my normal human emotions and human thoughts about it. And as I'm wrestling with these thoughts, out of seemingly nowhere, I was ambushed and a thought came in. Hey, why don't you love him? Why, why don't instead of you, you know, ignoring him and giving the cold shoulder, why don't you be generous to him? Why don't you be kind to him? Why don't you show forgiveness? Why don't you extend the same kindness that your heavenly father has shown to you? Why don't you show it towards him too? Who knows? You might just gain a brother. Who knows? You might actually help him in his journey. And as I'm like, whoa, 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 where, where is this thought coming from? I was like, no, 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 no. Like, no, I don't like him. I'm doing my thing. And I know maybe there's another way. And I'm battling between these two thoughts. And you probably have your own stories where the similar things happen. And as I was fighting this out, I stopped and went, hang on a second. I recognize this voice. God bless you. That's Jesus. Because that's not Jono. I definitely know that's not Jono. And I know it's not like, you know, the devil, someone else. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ. And He'll always be there. If you're open, if you're open-handed enough, if you're willing, He's always speaking. He's always prodding. He's always teaching. He's always showing what God is like. And maybe you've held on to an idea of what God is like and it shaped how you treat people. It shaped how you interact with the world. It shapes how you think. Are you open to having that idea of God shattered and rebuilt? Because the Holy Spirit has all the time in the world to teach you and to remind you and to shape you and to show you and to lead you and to guide you into all truth. And this is, this is like, this is, this is tough, right? This is like, there's kind of no get out of jail clause here, right? We all got to wrestle with this because we're humans. So there's a human way and there's allegedly the holy way. And Jesus understood that there is this great tension here. And so in a classic Jesus way, he told a parable that really highlights the two different approaches, two major approaches that people can have with their idea with God and how it interrelates and how they relate to God. And it's recorded in the gospel of Luke. And so this is a parable. This is a story. Here's how Jesus teaches. He says, Two men 
went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And to give you some context, if you're not familiar with this, Pharisee was a religious leader and in many cases a politi- had political power in Jesus' day. They were intimidate people, were intimidated by them. They were powerful religious people. And a tax collector was hated by all ancient uh, Israelites because they were seen as traitors. They were seen as turning their back on their own people. They were working for the enemy. They were working for Rome. So Jesus painting this picture, the first people who were hearing it would have sensed attention. There are two people in the temple, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee, He stood by himself and he prayed. Now check out this for a prayer, okay? He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Anyone ever prayed that before? Be thankful for that. (laughs) He said, I'm not like robbers. I'm not like evildoers. I'm not like adulterers. And then here's the gold. He points to the poor tax collector on the other side of church. And he goes, and I'm grateful I'm not even like this tax collector. It's like if you're here tonight and you're singing away and go, God, I'm just so grateful I don't sound like her. She's horrible singing. I'm an awesome singer, whatever it is, right? Of course you wouldn't do that. You're a nice person, but this Pharisee, geez. So he said, I'm not like this tax collector. He said, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. So what's he doing here? Jesus is painting a picture. This guy thinks he's bringing his like kind of resume. He's bringing his strengths. He's bringing his kind of his impressive works to God. He's thinking that God is gonna be impressed by his piousness, by his commitment, by his strength, by his lack of weaknesses, by his comparing to other people. Thinking that God is like humans because humans are oppressed by our resumes, right? Like think about it. When you go for a job, like you're trying to talk yourself up. You go to an interview, you're not gonna talk your way down. Like when someone goes, tell me one of your strengths. They're like, ah, oh, my strengths. Um, my strength is I probably work too hard. Too real? Okay, so, so we try and talk ourselves up, right? We present a resume. We present this idea that like these are my strengths. This is how good I am. And rightly so, people are impressed by that. The human ways, we're transactional. We're like, you work keeps hard, you are diligent, that's impressive. I'm gonna reward you for that. The Pharisee thought that God was like humans. And so he brought his resume to God. But then the tax collector had a different hunch. He thought God was unique to humans and he's how he approached. The story goes on. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Instead of bringing his resume to try and impress God, look at my professional ethic, look at my work ethic, look at how much I've accumulated in my life. Instead of bringing his resume, he had a hunch that God was uniquely different. That God wasn't gonna be impressed like people would be impressed. So instead of bringing his resume, he just reminded God of his own resume. He said, God, I have a hunch that you're merciful, that not only are you aware of my strengths, you're also extremely aware of my weaknesses. And I can kind of hold face here and try and look tough and religious and spiritual, but the truth is, you know all the areas I'm broken and you know all the areas I don't have together. So I want to appeal to your resume. You're a merciful God. You're a God that shows grace. I have a feeling that you're a God that you get our fragile state as humans. And so rather than pay us what we deserve, you're going to give us what we don't deserve. You're going to show us mercy. And so two different ideas of God, one thinking God was like humans, another thinking that God was different, that God was holy. It radically shaped two different approaches to God. And this is Jesus' conclusion of this analogy, his parable. He said, I tell you that this man, speaking of the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Don't miss this. Said for all those who exalt themselves, lift themselves up, make themselves big noted that their idea is the idea. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves, those who are open to change, those who are open to being wrong, those who are open 
to growth, those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. And so Jesus paints this picture of two radical approaches. The Pharisee thought that God's way is human and the tax collector had a hunch that God's way is holy. And here's the tension that you and I have to wrestle with. We're gonna wrestle with not just tonight, but this series, but in our lives. There's always this way that's a human way, but then there's always another way. There's a holy way. There's God's way. And Jesus concludes this teaching, this tension about the human way or the holy way by saying, if you exalt yourself, you'll be humble. But if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. What's he talking about there? Why did he conclude with that tension? I think it's something like this. When it comes to our idea about what God is like, are you open to being wrong? Are you open to having your idea of what God is like? Reshaped, matured, deepened, fixed, restored, renewed. The humble way, a life that says, God, I don't have this all figured out. And maybe that's where you are in your life right now. And, if, and I wanna encourage you, if you've come here and you're here tonight, I wanna ask you, not just tonight, but for this series, would you be open-handed to say, my idea, as much as it's helped to shape the current life of God and the way I interact with the world and the way I live, I'm open to change. And I don't wanna exalt myself and think that my idea is the idea and I'm concrete in my idea and I'm concrete in my thinking, nothing's gonna change. Will you choose humility? Go, I'm open to being corrected. Because Jesus said, if you humble yourself, if you humble yourself, if you lay down your idea, you are the one who's gonna be exalted. You're the one who's gonna get it. In other words, in other words, he's saying this, humility paves the way for intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. I mean, isn't, isn't that what this whole conversation is about? To know what God is like, it's because we're all trying to figure out, can I have a relationship with Him? Can I be close with Him? What is He like? Because if you wanna draw close to someone, the more you know what someone is like, the more intimate you can be with that person. Walls come down, suspicion comes down, trust is built, intimacy is established. But Jesus said the way to intimacy with God is through the path of humility, of letting go of your pre-notion, your ideas, maybe your prejudices, maybe your biases and going, I've held onto this for 40 years. And it's not necessarily bad, but I'm open to being more right. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading over a transcript of a, a debate between a Christian and a Muslim. And it was, it was a fascinating, two people very passionate about their idea of what God is like. And the crux of the debate reached its kind of peak when uh, the Muslim guy in the debate said to the Christian, he goes, here's the thing. I cannot stomach the Christian idea of what God is like, that you say he is like Jesus, that he is Jesus, that Jesus was God in the flesh. I cannot stomach it. Because in fact, I find that idea of God absolutely offensive because if God is a creator and God is almighty and God is strong, to suggest that He became human means He became less God. I mean, because humans need to sleep and surely the almighty doesn't need to sleep and humans need to, you know, go to the bathroom. Surely the almighty doesn't need, literally, this is how he put it, but he used other words. Surely God, the almighty, doesn't need to go to the bathroom. Like He is almighty. And to suggest that He became human, to suggest that He became incarnate, that's offensive to the idea of God. God is not like people. To which the Christian replied, he goes, but that's exactly 
the point. And this is why as followers of Jesus, we are so undone by the message and the example and the life of Christ. The idea that the Almighty chose to humble Himself, to have intimacy with humanity. That there is the crux of the Christian message. And that's why Christians are undone by the message of Jesus, that God left the lofty heights of heaven to find a dirt covered cradle, came as a human and replaced His strength for weakness. And so in the same way that Jesus taught that intimacy paves the way, humility paves the way for intimacy, God led by example. God through Jesus chose humility to have intimacy with you and I. And God could have kept these lofty ideals, these big pontificating ideas of, will they ever know what I'm like? He said, I'm gonna show them what I'm like. And the best way I can show them of what I am like is to become like them, but to show a better way, to show the human way intermingled with the holy way, and it will change the world forever. And friends, here is the place that you and I find ourselves in, talking about a God who expressed what He was like in the most humblest way He could through becoming a human. And this is why we sing. This is why we give. This is why we devote our lives. We just, how could God, we should be the ones humbling ourselves and indeed we should, but yet He led the way and He went first and He humbled Himself to the point of death so that you and I could know intimacy the Heavenly Father. Do you realize what's been done for you? And I wonder if your idea of God has been a little boxed in. And I wonder if you'd allow, as C.S. Lewis wrote, and it took him something tragedy like the death of his wife to come to this conclusion. May it not have to happen for you and I. May we in this moment go, all right, I'm open to my idea of what God is like being shattered. So here's my question for you for this series. Am I willing to choose humility in order to find greater intimacy? Are you willing? Are you willing to be open to change and open to growth? Because your heavenly Father loves you so much, wants to be in a close relationship with you. And if you feel like your faith in God has been stale or hanging by a thread, maybe on its last legs, Maybe it needs to begin with a new idea of what God is like. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we get to know you. Even the idea of being able to have a relationship with you, it's just, it's it's so wonderful. Lord, we're trying to figure this out. And here we are in a building in Mumbai in 2019, talking about what you're like. Would you help us in this conversation? Even beyond this series, would you help us in our lives? And for those of us that are holding on to ideas and maybe need shattering, Holy Spirit, we give you permission. Shatter away. Lord, where there's ideas that are maybe just partly, partly skewed, fix it. Maybe for some of us, Lord, where life events have caused the blurring of what you're like, I pray that you clear the fog. I even see the Holy Spirit doing that right now for many of you. He's clearing fog. It's like a cloud is lifting off some of you where you feel like it's been a a confusing relationship. I thank you, Holy Spirit, right now, lifting that cloud off people. For those, Lord, that have never known what it is to have a personal relationship with you, tonight 
may it begin. May the journey towards intimacy with the Heavenly Father begin. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church. Thank you.